Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 1247. How many lies before you belong to the lies, part 20. This is being recorded on June 1st of the year 2022. Before we get into the main body of the program, some links. These are at the top of each written for the record description. I turn each program into a long article length description so that people can check out the sources upon which my lines of argument are based. And uh, at the top of each one of those and at the top of each food for thought post, there are a number of links. One of those links will enable you to subscribe to the podcasts that are being made by sister station WFMU. So if podcasting is the best way for you to consume the program, sister station WFMU is podcasting for the record. The second link will enable you to subscribe to the comments, most of which are made by our brilliant contributing editor, Parafractal, some of them by other intelligent listeners. There is way too much going on for me possibly to cover that in one weekly broadcast, uh, and so the uh, comments that were being made by Parafractal are very important in that regard. Another link will enable you to subscribe to the, not subscribe to, but to obtain the 32 gigabyte flash drive containing not only all of my work and all of the written comments, uh, I'm in my 43rd year on the air, but also to obtain a, well everything basically on the Spitfire List Bobcom website, including the library of old anti-fascist books that are, uh, Basically, uh, an invaluable resource. They're on easy-to-download PDF files. I couldn't be more pessimistic. I think we are uh, nearing the end of our civilization. I think there is a very good chance of there being a Third World War. And I think that the listeners, frankly, have a responsibility as sentient beings, I know that sounds weird and or corny, but to preserve a record for posterity about what happened. And last, but most assuredly not least, uh, I have begun a Patreon site which is taking shape. Uh, there is, again, much too much going on for me to cover in a single one-hour-per-week broadcast. I'm doing three one-hour talks per uh, week, and also we're going to begin bi-weekly Zoom Q&A sessions, the first of which uh, should be happening this coming Sunday. That will be June 5th. Uh, that Patreon site is taking shape very as uh, I speak, and uh, I'm also going to be writing some articles for that as well, possibly uh, written descriptions for the hourly talks. Uh, originally, we were going to do transcriptions for those talks because there was software that would transcribe the uh, talks, but that just wasn't effective or efficient enough to be practical. So I may be writing some written descriptions for those talks, uh, and in any event, I will be writing uh, articles for the for uh, the Patreon site. So again, that is taking shape. A listener 
emailed me this past week encouraging me to move on from the war in Ukraine. There certainly is a great deal going on. That is one of the reasons why I've started the Patreon site, to uh, basically talk more about what is going on. I can cover far more in three one-hour uh, more informally structured talks than I can in uh, the one hour per week of this uh, very pedantic set-piece break in battle. So that is another way to uh, keep up with what is going on. I will be moving on from the Ukraine war at some point. I think uh, this has the very real possibility of bringing about the end of our civilization. I think the possibilities of a World War I-style escalation via in, uh, treaty entanglement is only too great, and uh, so I'm focusing on that. Uh, th- there will be other things covered in the one-hour broadcasts, and I share that listener's concern, but... Uh, uh, basically, <laughs> uh, I don't have a, a real big effect on things, but I have some effect, and I have to do what little I can, I think, to uh, prevent the end of our civilization. Now, in that regard, uh, in this program, we are going to continue with presenting the very important material that has been uh, given to us by a Swiss intelligence officer named Jacques Beau, B-A-U-D. He also worked extensively with NATO and other things. His CV is described here as follows. Jacques Beau, again, B-A-U-D is his last name, is a former colonel of the... By the way, this uh, is translated from the French, so if... uh, The verbiage is somewhat awkward. There is a reason for that. Jacques Beau is a former colonel of the general staff, ex-member of the Swiss Strategic Intelligence, and specialist on eastern countries. He was trained in the American and British intelligence services. He has served as policy chief for UN peace operations. As a UN expert on rule of law and security institutions, he designed and led the first multidimensional UN intelligence unit in the Sudan. He has worked for the African Union and was for five years responsible for the fight at NATO against the proliferation of small arms. He was involved in discussions with the highest Russian military and intelligence officials just after the fall of the USSR. Within NATO, he followed the 2014 Ukrainian crisis and later participated in programs to assist the Ukraine. He is the author of several books on intelligence, war, and terrorism. And uh, more about his background is presented in the interview that we're about to present. Uh, This interview was conducted by the Postal Magazine, that is P-O-S-P-I-L. A strong caveat, they support a lot of material that I would describe as fascist or proto-fascist, so I want to give an emphatic caveat about the Postal Magazine per se. That having been said, I think we all owe them a tremendous debt of gratitude for presenting not only the two military 
analyses of the Ukraine war, one from April 1st of this year and the second from April 11th. We have accessed those in the last uh, three for the record programs, and also this interview that the Postal Magazine did with Jacques Beau on May 1st of 2022. And this is titled, appropriately enough, Our Interview with Jacques Beau. And this, again, from the Postal Magazine of May 1st of 2022. In this penetrating interview, Jacques Beau delves into geopolitics to help us better understand what is actually taking place in Ukraine, in that it ultimately is the larger struggle for global dominance led by the U.S., NATO, and the political leaders of the West and against Russia. As always, Colonel Bo brings to bear his well-informed analysis, which is unique for its depth and gravity. We are sure that you will find this conversation informative, insightful, and crucial in connecting the dots. Well, that gets an amen from yours truly. Uh, one of the things, one of the elements of criticism that Jacques Beau has in his two analyses and in this interview is that what we are hearing in the West comes from a, not only from the Ukrainian government itself, which is basically uh, Nazi and fascist, and is being presented by the organizations that I call the OUNB successor organizations. It also is coming from politicians and media voices who are extremely partisan and themselves divorced from physical, political, and military reality in a fundamental way. One of the criticisms of Jacques Beau as an intelligence professional, is that the voices we are hearing in the West, and he is based in France, uh, are not based on what is coming from well-informed intelligence agencies. It is coming from extremely biased entities such as Ukraine and both political and uh, media outlets in the U.S. that uh, basically have that strong anti-Russian and, frankly, irrational, as someone whose background is in psychology, I would call the perspective in the West not only fascist in one sense, but really psychotic in that it is divorced in a fundamental way from physical reality. Now, the Postal Magazine's interview goes as follows. The Postal, we are so very pleased to have you join us for this conversation. Would you please tell us a little bit about yourself, about your background? Jacques Beau. Thank you for inviting me. As to my education, I have a master's degree in econometrics and postgraduate diplomas in international relations and in international security from the Graduate Institute for International Relations in Geneva, Switzerland. I worked as a strategic intelligence officer in the Swiss Department of Defense and was in charge of the Warsaw Pact Armed Forces, including those deployed abroad, such as Afghanistan, Cuba, Angola, etc. Interrupting, uh, again, this is translated from the French, so uh, he, he was not obviously in charge of uh, the Warsaw Pact Forces, but in charge of and analyzing those forces for the Swiss Military Intelligence Service. 
Continuing, I attended intelligence training in the UK and in the US. Just after the end of the Cold War, I headed for a few years a unit in the Swiss Defense Research and Procurement Agency. During the Rwanda War, because of my military and intelligence background, I was sent to the Democratic Republic of Congo as security advisor to prevent ethnic cleansing in the Rwandan refugee camps. During my time in the intelligence service, I was in touch with the Afghan resistance movement of Ahmed Shah Massoud, and I wrote a small handbook to help Afghans in demining and neutralizing Soviet bombers. In the mid-1990s, the struggle against anti-personnel mines became a foreign policy priority of Switzerland. I proposed to create a center that would collect information about landmines and demining technologies for the UN. This led to the creation of the Geneva International Center for Humanitarian Demining in Geneva. I was later offered to head the policy and doctrine unit of the UN Department of Peacekeeping Operations. After two years in New York, I went to Nairobi to perform a similar job for the African Union. Then, I was assigned to NATO to counter proliferation of small arms. Switzerland is not a member of the NATO alliance, but this particular position had been negotiated as a Swiss contribution to the Partnership for Peace with NATO. In 2014, as the Ukraine crisis unfolded, I monitored the flow of small arms in the Donbass. Later in the same year, I was involved in a NATO program to assist the Ukrainian armed forces in restoring their capacities and improving personnel management with the aim of restoring trust in them. The Postal You have written two insightful articles about the current conflict in the Ukraine, which we have had the great privilege to translate and publish, and there are links to both of those. I have read those into the record and presented uh, the articles themselves in uh, the last three for the record shows. Was Was there a particular event or an instance which led you to formulate this much-needed perspective? Jacques Beau. As a strategic intelligence officer, I always advocated providing to the political or military decision-makers the most accurate and the most objective intelligence. This is the kind of job where you need to keep your prejudice and your feelings to yourself in order to come up with an intelligence that reflects as much as possible the reality on the ground rather than your own emotions or beliefs. I also assume that in a modern democratic state decision must one more time. I also assume that in a modern democratic state decision decision making must be fact based. This is the difference with autocratic political systems where decision-making is ideology-based, such as in the Marxist states, or religion-based, such as in the French pre-revolutionary monarchy. Again, uh, rereading this, because this really is Jacques Bellot's perspective, and it differs fundamentally from all the fascist Nazi hysteria we're hearing in this country. Again, I have posited that the war itself and the attendant coverage in the West is functioning like 
the philosopher's stone of the old alchemists. It is mystically transformed, not really mystical, but it is transforming the individuals and institutions in the West, including so-called liberals or so-called progressives, into something of the same fabric as the Ukrainian Institute of National Memory by Volodymyr Vyotrovich, basically the fascist-slash-Nazi perspective of the OUNB. Again, uh, Jacques Beau's perspective. This is the kind of job, one more time, as a strategic intelligence officer, I always advocated providing to the political or military decision makers the most accurate and the most objective intelligence. This is the kind of job where you need to keep your prejudice and your feelings to yourself in order to come up with an intelligence that reflects as much as possible the reality on the ground rather than your own emotions or beliefs. I also assume that in a modern democratic state, decision-making must be fact-based. That is the difference with autocratic political systems where decision-making is ideology-based, such as in the Marxist states, or religion-based, such as in the French pre-revolutionary monarchy. Thanks to my various assignments, I was able to have an insider view in most recent conflicts such as Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Syria, and of course, Ukraine. The main common aspect between all these conflicts is that we tend to have a totally distorted understanding of them. We do not understand our enemies their rationale, their way of thinking, and their real objectives. Hence, we are not even able to articulate sound strategies to fight them. This is especially true with Russia. Most people, including the top brass, tend to confuse, quote, Russia, unquote, and, quote, USSR, unquote. As I was in NATO, I could hardly find someone who could explain what Russia's vision of the world is or even its political doctrine. A lot of people think Vladimir Putin is a communist. We like to call him a dictator, but we have a hard time to explain what we mean by that. As examples, people come up invariably with the assassination of such and such journalists or former FSB or GRU agents, although evidence is extremely debatable. In other words, even if it is true, we are not able to articulate exactly the nature of the problem. As a result, we tend to portray the enemy as we wished him to be rather than as he actually is. This is the ultimate recipe for failure. This explains why after five years spent within NATO, I am more concerned about Western strategic and military capabilities than before. In 2014, during the Maidan Revolution in Kiev, I was in NATO in Brussels. I noticed that people didn't assess the situation as it was, but as they wished it would be. This is exactly what Sun Tzu describes as the first step towards failure. Again, I think this bears repeating of this. This is one of the reasons I am so damn scared, because uh, the people running the show here are divorced from reality. They are living in a psychological 
hermetically sealed, uh, basically, I couldn't call it a communication system, but a cognitive system in which they are only perceiving their own uh, fears, hopes, etc., and in a world that has nuclear weapons in which we are already using biological weapons, I think this is a formula for a civilization annihilating uh, event. One more time. In 2014, during the Maidan Revolution in Kiev, I was in NATO in Brussels. I noticed that people didn't assess the situation as it was, but as they wished it would be. This is exactly what Sun Tzu describes as the first step towards failure. In fact, it appeared clear to me that nobody in NATO had the slightest interest in Ukraine. The main goal was to destabilize Russia. The Postal How do you perceive Volodymyr Zelensky? Who is he, really? What is his role in this conflict? It seems he wants to have a forever war, unquote, since he must know he cannot win. Why does he prolong this conflict? Jacques Beau. Volodymyr Zelensky was elected on the promise he would make peace with Russia, which I think is a noble objective. The problem is that no Western country nor the European Union managed to help him realize this objective. After the Maidan Revolution, the emerging force in the political landscape was the far-right movement. I do not like to call it neo-Nazi, because Nazism was a clearly defined political doctrine, while in Ukraine we are talking about a variety of movements that combine all the features of Nazism, such as anti-Semitism, extreme nationalism, violence, etc., without being unified into a single doctrine. They are more like a gathering of fanatics. After 2014, Ukrainian armed forces' command and control was extremely poor and was the cause of their inability to handle the rebellion in Donbass. Parenthetically, we look at the origins of that in the first analysis by Jacques Beau. Continuing, suicide, alcohol incidents, and murder surged, pushing young soldiers to defect. Even the British government noted that young male individuals preferred to emigrate rather than to join the armed forces. As a result, Ukraine started to recruit volunteers to enforce Kiev's authority in the Russian-speaking part of the country. These volunteers were, and still are, recruited among far European far-right extremists. One more time. As a result, Ukraine started to recruit volunteers to enforce Kiev's authority in the Russian-speaking part of the country. These volunteers were, and still are, recruited among European far-right extremists. According to Reuters, their number amounts to 102,000. They have become a sizable and influential political force in the country. The problem here is that these far-right fanatics threatened to kill Zelensky were he to try to make peace with Russia. As a result, Zelensky found himself sitting between his promises and the violent opposition of an increasingly powerful far-right movement. In May of 2019, on the Ukrainian media, Obrazvavetel, forgive the spelling, Dmitry Yarosh 
forgive the pronunciation, Dimitro Yerov, head of the party sector and militia, and advisor to the army commander-in-chief, openly threatened President Zelensky with death if he came to an agreement with Russia. In other words, Zelensky appears to be blackmailed by forces he is probably not in full control of. In October of, ni- in October of 2021, the Jerusalem Post published a disturbing report on the training of Ukrainian far-right militias by American, British, French, and Canadian armed forces. The problem is that the collective West, unquote, tends to turn a blind eye to these incestuous and perverse relationships in order to achieve its own geopolitical goals. It is supported by unscrupulous, far-right biased medias against Israel, which tend to approve the criminal behavior of these militias. This situation has repeatedly raised Israel's concerns. This explains why Zelensky's demands to the Israeli parliament in March of 2022 were not well received and have not been successful. So, Despite his probable willingness to achieve a political settlement for the crisis with Russia, Zelensky is not allowed to do so. Just after he indicated his readiness to talk with Russia on the 25th of February, the European Union decided two days later to provide 450 million euros in arms to Ukraine. The same thing happened in March. As soon as Zelensky indicated he wanted to have talks with Vladimir Putin on March 21st, the European Union decided to double its military aid to 1 billion euros on 23rd of March. At the end of March, Zelensky made an interesting offer that was retracted shortly thereafter. Apparently, Zelensky is trying to navigate between Western pressure and his far right on the one hand, and his concern to find a solution on the other, and is forced into a back-and-forth which discourages the Russian negotiators. In fact, I think Zelensky is in an extremely uncomfortable position, which reminds me of Soviet Marshal Konstantin Rokossovsky's during World War II. Rokossovsky had been imprisoned in 1937 for treason and sentenced to death by Stalin. In 1941, he got out of prison on Stalin's orders and was given a command. He was eventually promoted to Marshal of the Soviet Union in 1944, but his death sentence was not lifted until 1956. Today, Zelensky must leave his country under the sword of Damocles with the blessing of Western politicians and unethical media. His lack of political experience made him an easy prey for those who were trying to exploit Ukraine against Russia and in the hands of extreme right-wing movements. As he acknowledges in an interview with CNN, he was obviously lured into believing that Ukraine would enter NATO more easily after an open conflict with Russia, as Alexei Arestovich, his advisor, confirmed in 2019. The Postal What do you think will be the fate of the Ukraine? Will it be like all the other experiments in, quote, spreading democracy, unquote, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, etc.? Or is Ukraine a special case? Jacques Beau. I definitely have no crystal ball. 
at this stage, we can only guess what Vladimir Putin wants. He probably wants to achieve two main goals. The first one is to secure the situation of the Russian-speaking minority in Ukraine. How remains an open question. Does he want to recreate the Nova Rossiya that tried to emerge from the 2014 unrests? This entity, unquote, that never really existed, and it consisted of the short-lived republics of Odessa, Donetsk, Dnepropetrovsk, Kharkov, and Lukansk, of which only the republics of Donetsk and Lukansk survived, unquote. The autonomy referendum planned for early May in the city of Kherson might be an indication for this option. Another option would be to negotiate an autonomous status for these areas and to return them to Ukraine in exchange of its neutrality. The second goal is to have a neutral Ukraine, some will say a Finlandized Ukraine, that is, without NATO. It could be some kind of Swiss armed neutrality, unquote. As you know, in the early 19th century, Switzerland had a neutral status imposed on it by the European powers, as well as the obligation to prevent any misuse of its territory against one of these powers. This explains the strong military tradition we have in Switzerland and the main rationale for its armed forces today, something similar could probably be considered for Ukraine. An internationally recognized neutral status would grant Ukraine a high degree of security. This status prevented Switzerland from being attacked during the two world wars. The often mentioned example of Belgium is misleading because during both world wars, its neutrality was declared unilaterally and was not recognized by the belligerents. In the case of Ukraine, it would have its own armed forces, but would be free from any foreign military presence, neither NATO nor Russia. This is just my guess, and I have no clue about how this could be feasible and accepted in the current polarized international climate. And note the next paragraph, very important here. I am not sure about the so-called color revolutions aimed at spreading democracy. My take is that it is just a way to weaponize human rights, the rule of law, or democracy in order to achieve geostrategic objectives. In fact, this was clearly spelled out in the memo to Rex Tillerson, Donald Trump's Secretary of State, in 2017. Ukraine is a case in point. After 2014, despite Western influence, it has never been a democracy. Corruption soared between 2014 and 2020. In 2021, it banned opposition media and jailed the leader of the main parliamentary opposition party. As some international organizations have reported, torture is a common practice, and opposition leaders, as well as journalists, are chased by the Ukrainian Security Service. The Postal Why is the West only interested in drawing a simplistic image of the Ukraine conflict, that of good guys, unquote, and bad guys, unquote? Is the Western public really now that dumbed down? Jacques Beau I think this is inherent to any conflict. Each side 
tends to portray itself as the good guy, unquote. This is obviously the main reason. Besides this, other factors come into play. First, most people, including politicians and journalists, still confuse Russia and the USSR. For instance, they don't understand why the Communist Party is the main opposition party in Russia. Second, since 2007, Putin was systematically demonized in the West. Whether or not he is a dictator, unquote, is a matter of discussion, but it is worth noting that his approval rate in Russia never fell below 59% in the last 20 years. I take my figures from the Levada Center, which is labeled as a foreign agent, unquote, in Russia, and hence doesn't reflect the Kremlin's views. It is also interesting to see that in France, some of the most influential so-called experts, unquote, on Russia are, in fact, working for the British MI6's Integrity Initiative. Third, in the West, there is a sense that you can do whatever you want if it is in the name of Western values. This is why the Russian offensive in Ukraine is passionately sanctioned, while France, UK, and US wars get strong political support, even if they are notoriously based on lies. Quote, do what I say, not what I do, unquote. One could ask, what makes the conflict in Ukraine worse than other wars? In fact, each new sanction we apply to Russia highlights the sanctions we haven't applied earlier to the U.S., the U.K., or France. The purpose of this incredible polarization is to prevent any dialogue or negotiation with Russia. We are back to what happened in 1914, just before the start of World War One. Again, <laughs> uh, that is what I'm afraid of, and I am, frankly, scared bleepless. The purpose of this incredible polarization is to prevent any dialogue or negotiation with Russia. We are back to what happened in 1914, just before the start of World War One. The Postal. What will Russia gain or lose with this involvement in the Ukraine, which is likely to be long-term? Russia is facing a conflict on two fronts, unquote, it would seem. A military one and an economic one with the endless sanctions and, quote, canceling, unquote, of Russia. With the end of the Cold War, Russia expected being able to develop closer relations with its Western neighbors. It even considered joining NATO, but the U.S. resisted every attempt of rapprochement. NATO's structure does not allow for the coexistence of two nuclear superpowers. The U.S. wanted to keep its supremacy. Since 2002, the quality of the relations with Russia decayed, decayed slowly but steadily. It reached a first negative peak in 2014 after the Maidan coup. The sanctions have become U.S. and E.U. primary foreign policy tools. The Western narrative of a Russian intervention in Ukraine got traction 
although it was never substantiated. Since 2014, I haven't met any intelligence professional who could confirm any Russian military presence in the Donbass. In fact, Crimea became the main, quote, evidence, unquote, of Russian, quote, intervention, unquote. Notice what he says next. This is characteristic, I think, of the insight and perspective that Jacques Beau affords. And again, he's not someone who's pro-Russia or pro-Putin, but he is a trained intelligence officer, and he knows the facts. Of course, Western historians ignore superbly that Crimea was separated from Ukraine by referendum in January of 1990, six months before Ukrainian independence and under Soviet rule. In fact, it is Ukraine that illegally annexed Crimea in 1995. Yet Western countries sanctioned Russia for that one more time. Of course, Russian historians ignore superbly that Crimea was separated from Ukraine by referendum in January of 1990, six months before Ukrainian independence and under Soviet rule. In fact, it is the Ukraine that illegally annexed Crimea in 1995, yet Western countries... In fact, it's Ukraine that illegally annexed Crimea in 1995, yet Western countries sanctioned Russia for that. Since 2014, sanctions severely affected East-West relations. After the signature of the Minsk agreements in September of 2014 and February of 2015, the West, namely France, Germany as guarantors for Ukraine, and the U.S., made no effort whatsoever to make Kiev comply, despite repeated requests from Moscow. Russia's perception is that whatever it will do, it will face an irrational response from the West. This is why, in February 2022, Vladimir Putin realized he would gain nothing by doing nothing. If you take into account his mounting approval rate in the country, the resilience of the Russian economy after the sanctions, the loss of trust in the U.S. dollar, the threatening inflation in the West, the consolidation of the Moscow-Beijing axis with the support of India, which the U.S. has failed to keep in the quad, Putin's calculation was unfortunately not wrong. Regardless of what Russia does, U.S. and Western strategy is to weaken it. From that point on, Russia has no real stake in its relations with the West. Again, the U.S. objective is not to have a, quote, better, unquote, Ukraine, or a, quote, better, unquote, Russia, but a weaker Russia. But it also shows that the U.S. is not able to rise higher than Russia, and that the only way to overcome it is to weaken it. This should bring an alarm bell in our countries. The Postal. You've written a very interesting book on Putin. Please tell us a little bit about it. Jacques Beau. In fact, I started my book in October of 2021 after a show on French state TV about Vladimir Putin. I am definitely not an admirer of Vladimir Putin, 
nor of any Western leader, by the way. But the so-called experts had so little understanding of Russia, international security, and even of simple plain facts that I decided to write a book. Later, as the situation around Ukraine developed, I adjusted my approach to cover this mounting conflict. The idea was definitely not to relay Russian propaganda. In fact, my book is based exclusively on Western sources, official reports, declassified intelligence reports, Ukrainian official media, and reports provided by the Russian opposition. The approach was to demonstrate that we can have a sound and factual or primitive understanding of the situation just with accessible information and without relying on what we call, quote, Russian propaganda, unquote. The underlying thinking is that we can only achieve peace if we have a more balanced view of the situation. To achieve this, we have to go back to the facts. Now, these facts exist and are abundantly available and accessible. The problem is that some individuals make every effort to prevent this and tend to hide the facts that disturb them. This is exemplified by some so-called journalist who dubbed me, quote, the spy who loved Putin, unquote. This is the kind of, quote, journalist, unquote, who live from stirring tensions and extremism. All figures and data provided by our media about the conflict come from Ukraine, and those coming from Russia are automatically dismissed as propaganda. My view is that both are propaganda. But as soon as you come up with Western data that do not fit into the mainstream narrative, you have extremists claiming you, quote, love Putin, unquote. Our media are so worried about finding rationality in Putin's actions that they turn a blind eye to the crimes committed by Ukraine, thus generating a feeling of impunity for which Ukrainians are paying the price. This is the case of the attack on civilians by a missile in Kramatorsk. We no longer talk about it because the responsibility of Ukraine is very likely, but this means that the Ukrainians could do it again with impunity. One more time, because again, this is something where if you suggest that this wasn't Russia, and the evidence points very strongly to the fact that it isn't, then again, just just as he said, oh, you must love Putin, you're, you're this, you're that. Um, you know, something I'll interject very quickly. Uh, decades of studying the Third Reich and their rhetoric and uh, their ideology and uh, terms like life unworthy of life, subhumans, useless bread gobblers can be very challenging. You should see some of the trolls that I've gotten, well, in general that I get, but particularly since the start of the Ukraine war. I'll tell you, it makes me think that maybe the Nazis had the right string, but the wrong yo-yo. Well, you talk about subhumans, life unworthy of life, useless bread gobblers, my goodness. Continuing here. Our media are so worried about finding rationality in Putin's actions that they turn a blind eye to the crimes committed by Ukraine, thus generating a feeling of impunity for which Ukrainians are paying the price. This is the case 
of the attack on civilians by a missile in Kramatorsk. We no longer talk about it because the responsibility of Ukraine is very likely, but this means that the Ukrainians could do it again with impunity. On the contrary, my book aims at reducing the current hysteria that prevent any political solution. I do not want to deny the Ukrainians the right to resist the invasion with arms. If I were Ukrainian, I would probably take the arms to defend my land. The issue here is that it must be their decision. The role of the international community should not be to add fuel to the fire by supplying arms, but to promote a negotiated solution. To move in this direction, we must make the conflict dispassionate and bring it back into the realm of rationality. In any conflict, the problems come from both sides, but here, strangely, our media show us that they all come from one side only. This is obviously not true, but in the end, it is the Ukrainian people who pay the price of our policy against Vladimir Putin. The Postal Why is Putin hated so much by the Western elite? Jacques Beau. Putin became Western elite's bet noir in 2007 with his famous speech in Munich. Until then, Russia had only moderately reacted to NATO expansion. But as the U.S. withdrew from the ABN Treaty in 2002 and started negotiations with some East European countries to deploy anti-ballistic missiles, Russia felt the heat, and Putin virulently criticized the U.S. and NATO. This was the start of a relentless effort to demonize Vladimir Putin and to weaken Russia. The problem was definitely not human rights or democracy, but the fact that Putin dared to challenge the Western approach. The Russians have in common with the Swiss the fact that they are very legalistic. They try to strictly follow the rules of international order. They tend to follow law-based international order, unquote. Of course, this is not the image we have because we are used to hiding certain facts. Crimea is a case in point. In the West, since the early 2000s, the U.S. has started to impose a rules-based international order, unquote. As an example, although the U.S. officially recognizes that there is only one China and that Taiwan is only a part of it, maintains a military presence on the island and supplies weapons. Imagine if China would supply weapons to Hawaii, which was illegally annexed in the 19th century. By the way, uh, that, that was one of the first foreign destabilization efforts. It took place, uh, it was done by John Watson Foster, I believe was the Secretary of State under Benjamin Harrison. In any event, he was the grandfather and namesake of John Foster Dulles. Continuing, and yes, it was illegally annexed. What the West is promoting is an international order based on the law of the strongest, unquote. As long as the U.S. was the sole superpower, everything was fine. But as soon as China and Russia started to emerge as world powers, the U.S. tried to contain them. This is exactly what Joe Biden said in March of 2021, shortly after taking office. Quote, The rest of the world is closing in and closing in fast. We can't allow this to continue, unquote. As Henry Kissinger said in the Washington Post, quote, 
For the West, the demonization of Vladimir Putin is not a policy. It is an alibi for the absence of one, unquote. This again, I think, bears repeating. As Henry Kissinger said in the Washington Post, for the West, the demonization of Vladimir Putin is not a policy. It is an alibi for the absence of one. This is why I felt we needed to have a more factual approach to this conflict. Do you know who was the postal? Do you know who was involved? And when it was decided by the U.S. and NATO that regime change in Russia was a primary geopolitical objective? Jacques Beau. I think everything started in the early 2000s. I'm not sure the objective was a regime change in Moscow, but it was certainly to contain Russia. This is what we have witnessed since then. The 2014 events in Kiev have boosted U.S. efforts. These were clearly defined in 2019 in two publications of the Rand Corporation. James Dobson, Raphael S. Cohen, Nathan Chandler, Brian Frederick, Edward Geist, Paul DeLuca, Forrest E. Morgan, and Howard J. Schatz, Brent Williams, extending Russia, competing from advantageous ground, unquote. Rand Corporation 2019, James Dobson's, James Dobbins et al. Also, quote, overextending and unbalancing Russia, unquote. Rand Corporation. This has nothing to do with the rule of law, democracy, or human rights, but only with maintaining U.S. supremacy in the world. In other words, nobody cares about Ukraine. This is why the international community, that is Western countries, make every effort to prolong the conflict. Since 2014, this is exactly what happened. Everything the West did was to fulfill U.S. strategic objectives. The Postal. In this regard, you have also written another interesting book on Alexei Navalny. Please tell us what you have found out about Navalny, and note some of what of his analysis here. You don't hear about this. Jacques Beau. What disturbed me about the Navalny case was the haste with which Western governments condemned Russia and applied sanctions, even before knowing the results of an impartial investigation. So my, so my point in the book is not to, quote, tell the truth, unquote, because we do not know exactly what the truth is, even if we have consistent indications that the, the official narrative is wrong. The interesting aspect is that the German doctors in the Charité Hospital in Berlin were not able to identify any nerve agent in Navalny's body. One more time. The interesting aspect is that the German doctors in the Charité Hospital in Berlin were not able to identify any nerve agent in Navalny's body. Surprisingly, they published their findings in the respected medical review The Lancet, showing that Navalny probably experienced a bad combination of medicine and other substances. The Swedish military lab that analyzed Navalny's blood redacted the name of the substance they discovered, which is odd since everybody expected Novichok to be mentioned. The bottom line is that we don't know exactly what happened, but the nature of the symptoms, the reports of the German doctors, the answers provided by the German government to the parliament, and the puzzling Swedish document tend to exclude a criminal poisoning and therefore a fortiori poisoning by the Russian government. The main point of my book is that international relations cannot be Twitter-driven, unquote. 
We need to use appropriately our intelligence resources, not as a propaganda instrument as we tend to do these days, but as an instrument for smart and fact-based decision-making. You have much ex- uh, the postal. You have much experience within NATO. What do you think is the primary role of NATO now? Jacques Beau. This is an essential question. In fact, NATO hasn't really evolved since the end of the Cold War. This is interesting because in 1969 there was the Harmel Report, unquote, that was ahead of its time and could be the fundament of a new definition of NATO's role. Instead, NATO tried to find new missions, such as in Afghanistan, for which the alliance was not prepared, neither intellectually nor doctrinally, nor from a strategic point of view. Having a collective defense system in Europe is necessary, but the nuclear dimension of NATO tends to restrict its ability to engage a conventional conflict with a nuclear power. This is the problem we are witnessing in Ukraine. This is why Russia strives at having a glasses, unquote, between NATO and its territory. This would probably not prevent conflicts, but would help keep them as long as possible in a conventional phase. This is why I think a non-nuclear European defense organization would be a good solution. The Postal Do you think that NATO's proxy war with Russia serves to placate internal EU tensions between between conservative, central, and eastern Europe and the more progressive West? Jacques Beau Some will certainly see it that way, but I think this is only a byproduct of the U.S. strategy to isolate Russia. The Postal. Can you say something about how Turkey has positioned itself between NATO and Russia? Jacques Beau. I worked extensively with Turkey as I was in NATO. I think Turkey is a very committed member of the alliance. What we tend to forget is that Turkey is at the crossroads between the Christian world and the Islamic world. It sits between two civilizations and in a key region of the Mediterranean zone. It has its own regional stakes. The conflicts waged by the West in the Middle East significantly impacted Turkey by promoting Islamism and stimulating tensions, in particular with the Kurds. Turkey has always tried to maintain a balance between its desire for Western-style modernization and the very strong traditionalist tendencies of its population. Turkey's opposition to the Iraq War due to domestic security concerns was totally ignored and dismissed by the U.S. and its NATO allies. Interestingly, when Zelensky sought the country to mediate this conflict, he turned to China, Israel and Turkey, but didn't address any EU country. The Postal. If you were to predict, what do you think the geopolitical situation of Europe and the world will look like 25 years from now? Jacques Beau. Who would have predicted the fall of the Berlin Wall? The day it happened, I was in the office of a national security advisor in Washington, D.C., but he had no clue about the importance of the event. I think the decay of U.S. hegemony will be the main feature of the next decades. At the same time, we will see a fast-growing importance of Asia, led by China and India. But I am not sure Asia will, quote, replace, unquote, the U.S., strictly speaking. While the U.S. worldwide hegemony was driven by its military-industrial complex, 
Asia's dominance will be in the research and technology area. The loss of confidence in the U.S. dollar may have significant impact on the U.S. economy at large. I don't want to speculate on future developments in the West, but a significant deterioration could lead the U.S. to engage in more conflicts around the world. This is something that we are seeing today, but it could become more important. The Postal. What advice would you give people trying to get a clearer picture of what is really driving competing regional, national, and global interests? Jacques Beau. I think the situation is slightly different in Europe than in North America. In Europe, the lack of quality alternative media and real investigative journalism makes it difficult to find balanced information. The situation is different in North America, where alternative journalism is more developed and constitutes an indispensable analytical tool. In the U.S., the intelligence community is more present in the media than in Europe. Boy, is that a fact. Just look at the New York Times. Continuing. I probably could not have written my book based only on the European media. At the end of the day, the advice I would give is a fundamental one of intelligence work. Be curious, unquote. The Postal, thank you so very much for your time and all of your great work. Well, amen. Uh, there is so much, not only in this interview, but in the articles that he presents. And again, he's not, you know, a pro-Russian, pro-Putin or anything like this, but he is a trained intelligence officer. And from talking about both uh, Ukrainian and Russian troops guarding Chernobyl to prevent sabotage, from uh, talking about uh, Ukrainian war crimes in all probability in Mariupol and in Kramatorsk, talking about uh, how basically people in NATO couldn't uh, basically couldn't, couldn't differentiate between Russia and the USSR. They think Putin's a communist. Talking about uh, what happened in Crimea, uh, talking about uh, Alexei Navalny, who, surprise, surprise, wasn't poisoned apparently by Novichok. These are very different perspectives from what one hears in the U.S. However, we are almost all at the time. Uh, again, uh, the comments by Parafractal and also the three weekly one-hour talks, uh, more informal in presentation that are on my Patreon site. They are going to be uh, supplemented with written articles and also uh, the first week, uh, first bi-weekly Zoom Q&A will be this coming weekend. This concludes for the record program number 1247. How many lies before you belong to the lies? Part 20. This is being recorded on June 1st of 2022. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun.